we had drinks tonight with another Raider couple. Uh, the wife had just gotten back from Breadloaf. Well, I guess she did uh, Breadloaf online, uh, Zoom sessions. And she was talking about a one of the one of the uh, the lecturers was a poet. Apparently, had some good insights. They're both prose writers. She writes memoir. He writes fiction. And she she you know she's speaking uh, uh, highly of this particular poet. And the the husband said just offhand, he said, you know, poets they they're often better. They often give better talks. And. I think I said something about, you know, having to come up with patter between the individual poems. And Joanna, I think, said something sort of sort of lighthearted about poets having a better sense of style. And it, it reminded me, my, my friend, another fiction writer who moved here recently, had said something. He dated a poet for a while at his old program, and he said, you know, she, she dressed very well, you know, the way poets do. And there was that scene in the old TV show Girls when the, the protagonist went to the Iowa Writers Workshop and she had some joke in a, a scene about, uh, you know, all the, all the female poets are so beautiful. And, you know, we sort of tossed some of this back and forth with the other couple and we were sort of joking, but it, it really seemed like an odd point of consensus. You know, the poet, poets on average, especially in an academic setting, the poets on average, they, they do give better talks. They do have sort of better patter, better cocktail party banter. They often are a little more stylish, have better clothes. On average, they're more attractive. You know, it just started to seem like we, we were all sort of in, in agreement that like socially and presentationally, poets are just uh, really just stand a, a head and shoulders above the fiction writers. And it was such a rare moment of warm, enthusiastic, genuine, shared appreciation for poets that I felt bad when I finally had to say, why? Because, because it is true. Po poets are, on average, uh, better at the, at the sort of podium talk. They often are a little more stylish. They often do have more memorable personas. And they are even, on average, a little more attractive than the fiction writers, than the nonfiction writers. And, and the reason for that, the reason for that is that underneath the unattractive, poorly dressed, uh, socially maladroit, agoraphobic, stuttering fiction writers, unappealing exterior, underneath all that, he, he's gotta actually write novels. He's gotta actually write fiction. You know, the nonfiction writer can afford to be a little clumsy. Uh, uh, can afford to have mustard on his tie, right? Can afford to she can afford to you know uh, to wear sneakers to the to the faculty party because th because they're actually writing real books. The poet, the poet has to have a good presentation. The poet has to have a memorable personality. The poet has to be attractive because there's nothing there at the center of it. The poets of basically the, the, the academic poet at a cocktail party or at a reading is a Fabergé egg. There is just a, a glittering exterior with an absolute hollow in the middle. And I felt bad 
articulating all of this to our friends who, you know, both of whom, who, as I said, write prose. They don't know. Joanne and I met at a poetry reading. We, we went to a poetry program together. We, we know this deep down. <laughs> but it was, you know, I think it was, I don't know that our guests had ever heard this articulated aloud before. And uh, maybe they just knew it intuitively. Maybe it just rang true. At any rate, I felt bad until I remembered this article my uh, friend Brian had sent me, it was just a, just an excerpt from an article by Freddie DeBoer in which he talks about some statistics pertinent to young people getting into publishing. So, so he says, I insist that you young folk take very seriously. Advances for books have dropped 40% in 10 years. 40% in 10 years. And in 2020, 98% of books sold less than 5,000 copies. The median advance is barely more than $6,000 now. The median advance. And you are unlikely to earn out even that amount. So he, he goes on. I think he is largely here talking about nonfiction books. But nonfiction books are better sellers than fiction books. So, you know, if, if we're, we're talking about literary fiction, you know, I read that and I thought, that's terrible news for, for uh, novelists. It's terrible for news for people trying to publish uh, any kind of book. But the other thought I had was that, you know, at this rate, in another 10 years, maybe less, your, your average successful, published novelist is going to be making about the same that your average successful published poet makes. And when that happens, well, you know, I guess all I have to say to the novelists is you're going to want to focus on protein, greens, fruits, but go easy. There's a lot of sugar in there. Stay away from carbs. You want to moisturize daily. Remember, you want to pick a moisturizer that has a little uh, uh, SPF to it. You, you know, when you're when you're shopping, you would rather have one ensemble that really flatters you than five that are all a little bit off. You know, so so shop for the size that you are, not the size that you want to be, but you want to get a little bit of cardio in every day. And when it comes to lifting weights. Uh, you focus on repetition and form over weight and bulk. And you can always practice your, your uh, small talk in the mirror. You know, look at yourself. In fact, you can even film yourself, watch the tape, and just uh, judge yourself objectively. Because the good news, the good news I have for you, is that now that you're going to be writing in a genre that is just as socially irrelevant as poetry, you're going to have a lot more time to focus on your appearance, on your presentation, on your shtick. You're going to have a lot more time for all of that now that you don't have to worry about making the books you write actually good because the one thing I can promise you is whether you labor over that book for a decade or you dash it off during NaNoWriMo, Nobody is going to be reading a single goddamn word.
I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. I want to thank all of you this week because I found out that Slee Rickets has now officially made it into the top 10% of all podcasts globally ranked by popularity, which is a big deal until you do a little bit of reading and find out that 90% of podcasts have a listenership of roughly zero. Hence the show's new slogan, Slee Rickets, greater than or intermittently equal to zero. At any rate, thank you so much, especially to all of you who've taken uh, an opportunity to rate the podcast, review the podcast, subscribe, or just recommend it to a friend, which, which once again, I think is, is really the, the most meaningful thing you can do to help out. I do appreciate it, and I will leave all the housekeeping there, uh, except to remind you that you can always write me at sleeverickets at gmail.com to complain or, or whatever else you'd like. I have promised for a few weeks to get around to Cameron's very smart uh, email about incoherence. So it is such a (laughs) well-written email. I'm just going to read from the main paragraph of it and then offer what little meaningful response maybe I I can. I I am going to cut out a few little uh, comical parentheticals just for the sake of clarity over over the um, the headphones. This is what Cameron wrote. And again, if I use a pronoun in a dumb way, I apologize. That's just me being an idiot. So here's Cameron. I've been stimulated by your last few episodes to think on incoherence myself. I've noticed that you have skillfully dodged around the more cliche, uh, cliche cousins of this argument. I mean, of course, difficulty and complexity. I must admit now that I have always strangely enjoyed poets who, as popular opinion might tenant, which fucking teenager uses tenant as a verb? Maybe that's common in the UK. I find it hard to believe. Uh, Sorry. I must admit now that I have always strangely enjoyed poets who, as popular opinion might tenant, would be alien to me because of my age and class. Poets like Geoffrey Hill and Hart Crane and Eliot, though he hardly seems difficult, even if you only understand English. I mean, that's true of some of Eliot's poems, but I mean, The Wasteland is a tough nut to crack with all the English you might you might come armed with. I say all this because it strikes me that much conversation, uh, the many conversations over difficulty are centered around the work of a modernist poet like Hill or Crane or Jay Wright who I looked up and is fascinating. I'd never heard of him until I read this email. So thank you so much. Uh, he's a, I'm, I'm going to come back to Jay Wright because I was a, there was a lot of juicy stuff there to discover. In your past two episodes, you've talked about two poems that might be termed at times or, in, or continuously incoherent, one by Lerner and one by Akbar. It's interesting to think that both these poems are by postmodernists. And now, before I go any further, I should probably defend my hasty and ill-conceived categories by the division of modernist and postmodernist verse, I, I, I am attempting to distinguish between poetry that uses formal structures and patterns in a serious strategy to uncover an unironic truth, aka modernism, and poetry that plays in the ruins of truth, aka postmodernism. I think you could make an argument for Akbar striving after truth from his long-winded self-criticism, but in that I agree with you about its own self-promotional and artificial character, and therefore la- label him firmly postmodernist. 
So getting to the point finally, I wonder if the accusation of incoherence can be more readily leveled at postmodernist poetry rather than modernist when I read poets like Hill and to a lesser extent Crane, I am at times not understanding them and reading them for sheer force of invention and music alone, but even when I cannot comprehend it, I can still tell that there is a truth, a point, an argument to their poetry. With poets like Lerner, first of all, I quickly become bored since there is very little music in them. Ashbery imitators uh, seem never able to imitate Ashbery's music, weirdly. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, and secondly, because there is no real truth or argument to it all, in other words, non sequiturs or incoherence. Uh, Paul Ceylon versus the language poets might be another good juxtaposition of that. So uh, uh, that is, I think, a, a extremely well said and mostly pretty right as far as I can tell. I mean, the, the only real... I guess I really just have two slight uh, hesitations to, you know, totally in, in endorsing that. One is that I as I've mentioned, was not an English major and just have, have struggled for years <laughs> satisfactorily to comprehend the actual meanings of the words modern and postmodern. And I've mostly given up. So I, I don't I, uh, I I don't know that I can really uh, say anything smart about that and, and I will I will not attempt to say anything uh, uh, dumb and entertaining either. The other hesitation I have is, is just that I think, so I think that that uh, Cameron's totally right that there are poems that play with difficult or confusing elements in a way that is intended ultimately to get at something get atable. That is that it, that whatever may seem like incoherence in them is finally serving a larger or a deeper coherence. And I think I've talked a little bit about that in uh, in the with uh, some poems in the recent in recent weeks um, D uh, Donald Halls Without as well as uh, Shane McRae's uh, Jim Limber on continuity in heaven and, and a few others. I think um, uh, Eliot is a is a terrific example of that especially The Wasteland um, among other poems. I have always had trouble with Hurt Crane and I've read very little Jeffrey Hill. There's another problem I have having to do with voice. That's just a it has to be a topic for a whole other uh, episode or five. But but I do think that 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 broadly speaking is is pretty on the money. There there are some other examples of poems that play with confusion or difficulty in a, in a way that I think yields an ultimate clarity. Uh, I'm even going to have, uh, I, I think, coming up a, I think, a pretty fun episode having a conversation with a friend about a, a book and movie adaptation that both do the same thing. So uh, on that point, I'm, I'm really with Cameron there. Uh, and and I, I'm also with uh, Cameron in, in intending to believe that there are poems that merely, uh, what is he, how does he put it? They play in the ruins of truth. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's all of Flarf. I think that's uh, much of uh, m much of you know. I mean, Ashbery as well as Ashbery's imitators. And good God Almighty, I mean, <laughs> Ashbery's if you, Ashbery imitator is is such a downgrade from Ashbery himself. I mean, he is not my favorite poet, but the man had a sparkling silver tongue, just flawlessly. I mean, even when he was at his most nonsensical it was always interesting to listen to and and that's that's hard to say about much writing of any description 
But yeah, the Ashbury imitators very, very seldom have, have anything worthwhile to say or even to hear. Uh, I, so I think, yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a lot of poetry that merely plays in the ruins of truth. I think in a very different way, concrete poetry, or uh, sorry, not concrete poetry, conceptual poetry of the, of the um, Goldsmithian variety does the same thing. And I think there's a, there's a little flirtation with that in Lerner. I, I do think that there's, a, there's another category of incoherence that's not quite this one, that's not quite playing in the ruins of truth. So I, I had a, a frustrating experience as a reader recently. I, I had a failure as a reader. Uh, so I had heard recommended the very, very short book, The 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte uh, by, by Karl Marx. I heard it recommended as a, as a great read. So this is the, this book begins with a terrific, terrific line, uh, an off, often misquoted line from Marx. Hegel remarks somewhere that all great world historic facts and personages appear, so to speak, twice. He forgot to add, the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. So that's the beginning of the 18th Brumaire. It's, um, a, I, I have heard a, a brilliant book and what I read of it, I read probably the first half about, was really, really well written and, and had moments of brilliance. I, I underlined individually uh, hilarious or penetrating lines, but there was a problem <laughs> for me. And that problem is that the antique Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte is a very close, very detailed, blow-by-blow blow analysis of mid-19th century French parliamentary procedure. And I, being an ignorant fucking American, don't know anything about mid-19th century French anything. I was completely lost. In other words, I, I, I could read every individual sentence and, you know, accounting for proper nouns, could recognize that it made perfect sense, but I had absolutely no context. It was like trying to swim in a hay bale. It was like, you know what, actually, I, I have read that it is possible to drown in a grain silo, right? To fall into like millet or corn or oats and simply drown. <laughs> Like, as in quicksand, you literally fall in and you cannot get out and you die. Apparently, still, like, dozens of people die of this every year. So it felt a little bit like drowning in dry corn. Uh, so, again, this is, this, has, this is to say nothing of Marx's ability as a writer. It's just that I had so, so little context for the for the for the book for his what he was saying that i i could never get my bearings i had nothing to stand on i had nothing to push off of and it, it just that experience and my eventual failure to complete the book which was uh I, I i lost it in my in my house i lost the book and as freud would say uh there you know there are no accidents and so my unconscious finally just put me out of my readerly misery maybe it will turn up at some point when i learn about uh, the mid 19th century French parliamentary procedure procedure. But for now, it, it, it just, it reminded me of another kind of incoherence that I've experienced. That is 
the incoherence of disorientation, which is a little bit different from the incoherence of uh, mere non sequitur or, or mere whimsy or, or, or arbitrary composition. So I, I, um, I think that certainly with, with a lot of Akbar, and I, I did in penance for my bad behavior on a previous episode when I, when I badmouthed Akbar, in penance I bought his book and read it. I have, a, I have a few thoughts and not all in the same direction either. I mean, I think he is talented and I think he has some ability. I think, uh, spoiler alert, mostly he does not do much with it. But uh, so I, I, I think that with him, there is less conscious playing in the ruins. So it's sort of like, this. so imagine, you know, the, it, it is critics of, you know, contemporary avant-garde or however you want to call it, experimental postmodern art are fond of using, are fond of referring to the fairy tale of the, the emperor's new clothes. I think, was that, was it Hans Christian Andersen? I want to say, or was it, I can't remember. Anyway, they're, they're fond of referring to this very familiar story of an emperor who was sold literally naked air by a bunch of con artist tailors who told him that uh, only the most refined and uh, sensitive eyes could perceive this this exquisite cloth. And so the emperor went marching down the street uh, buck naked and only a little boy who had not been taught how to act sophisticated was honest enough to point and laugh and say, the emperor is naked. At which point everybody realized that they had all been merely pretending to see what in fact nobody else could see. So that's a fine fairy tale, but I think it's a little bit inaccurate as a as an analogy for contemporary poetry, say, because I, I think it would be a little bit more like, well, first of all, it's not the difference between real cloth and no cloth. It's, it's sort of cloth. It's some cloth. It's bits and patches. It's some threads. It's it's not nothing. And furthermore, the tailors aren't pure con artists. They're not pure con artists. And, you know, I'll just say that I think that in the case of someone like Akbar and, and some other writers, Lerner may be a slightly more complicated case. I don't know what I think about him entirely. But, but in the case of Lerner and in the case of this poem I'm going to read in a moment, I think that it is not so much that the tailor knows he is selling the emperor uh, a, a, a lie, I think he he has an inkling. I think he he knows in his heart of hearts, maybe, that that he's not really that he's not really a genius. <laughs> but but he has come to believe pretty well what people say about his invisible clothing or his say translucent clothing and so he is as he is as much a he is responding to his own work with the same leap of faith that everybody else uses in trying to seem with it in trying not to seem unsophisticated so i i think that there you know i'll tell you what i was reminded of when i was in college 
and I I met um, I met Ryan, a friend I mentioned a few times on this podcast. Ryan Wilson, a terrific poet editor, and uh, many other things. Too many jobs to name. I would be here all night. So he he and I met in uh, Claudia Rankin's class uh, of of all places uh, at the University of Georgia, and he sat me down. I remember it was sort of one specific afternoon where he sat me down with a poem I had written, and he. Uh, very gently tore me a new asshole. And, and, and it was in this specific way. So what I, what you know, to give you a sense of, I think, if I tried to recreate my method for writing in those days, it would go probably something like this. And I don't know that I thought about all of this consciously, but it would go something like this. I, I have a strong feeling about something. Uh, I uh, draw up some images, some phrases, some associations that have to do with that, the, the vicinity of that feeling. I, I set them down somewhat intuitively. I also, while doing this, remember poems I've read and that I've responded to, and I sometimes consciously, often unconsciously, imitate those poems. It, it, you know, sometimes superficially, just punctuation, just typography, sometimes uh, it, with images, some not sometimes in form, but really in these days I was writing almost exclusively in free verse with a with a fairly steady iambic heartbeat under underlying it. And then as I wrote and rewrote, I would go back through, and I had been told, I'd been taught that it was bad to include cliches and received phrases in a poem, and so I would go through and I would excise or rework any phrases that seemed overly familiar. I had been told that it was bad to include uh, very predictable sequences of sentences, of words, of images or argument. And so I would go back through and I would try to make the progression of the poem more surprising, uh, again, in, in superficial or substantial ways. And I'd also been told that uh, it was good to include uh, new or rare elements and items. So I would often, I'd be always be on the lookout for a good piece of vocabulary that I had not seen any time recently in print so that I could include that. I, uh, um, I would proceed largely by intuition as well as with the, 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 the ever-evolving or, or rather... Um, ever accruing memory of the responses I had gotten from other students and from professors in poetry workshops, of which I'd been uh, in about a thousand of them at that point, and only went to even more after that. So it was largely an intuitive process, but it was not a it was not a malicious process. It was not a an idiotic process. You know, I, I read a lot, I thought a lot, I I revised a lot. And as I went back through and through and through, you know, I, I kept in mind the the vague set of guidelines that I'd received from workshops and, and the, the, the sense I had begun to pull together of how a workshop might respond to a poem. But I also returned over and over again to my own emotional inspiration, to the thing that moved me to write in the first place. And I would go back through the poem and back through the poem and back through the poem, trying to adjust it so as best and most faithfully to respond to that 
impulse. Ryan sat me down and God bless him, he he, he had a, a sharp enough nose to say, hey, there's some there's something here. There's some knack for language. There's some uh, uh, ear for, for, you know, a turn of phrase. There's some uh, a, a relationship to a tradition in some capacity. But what he, what he had to teach me was an extremely simple lesson, unbelievably simple lesson that it didn't occur to me, didn't truly did not, did not digest this until my junior year of college. Uh, so apologies, Cameron. <laughs> your your host is a fucking idiot. It, it, it truly didn't occur to me until this afternoon when he finally got it through my head that in order to write a poem, it, it wasn't enough that for me, all of the elements of the poem came together in a satisfying whole. It wasn't enough that for me, it evoked the experience that had inspired it. I had to reverse engineer an experience for my reader. I had to imagine myself as a stranger and reread the poem as a stranger with a stranger's eyes and try to see if I could follow the breadcrumbs, if I could reconstitute the, uh, the, the, the constellation from the little elements on the page. And of course, what I very quickly found was that the overwhelming majority of the poems that I had written up, up to then were gobbledygook, were nonsense, sometimes very well-turned nonsense, sometimes nonsense with some really killer voltas or syntactical uh, springs. Sometimes they were uh, filled with dazzling vocabulary. Sometimes they had weighty and even... Uh, startling and, and stirring allusions. Sometimes they had passages that were pretty memorable. And they had all been composed with great care. I hadn't dashed off any of it. It wasn't bullshit. I wasn't a faker. I wasn't lying. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't trying to, to pull off a fraud. I just had not bothered to imagine the mind of the reader. And of course, once I realized what I've been doing, I then had to learn how to write all over again, which took, uh, let's see, how old am I now? It took 20 years and counting, we'll say. Still working on it. But I, I, I tend to suspect that a lot of the, you know, not quite nonsense, but largely incoherent poems that we read that people that, that we read that I, I think have little moments of clarity or moments of poignancy or a little or, or, or even have a, an explicit and moving backstory. I think that in in most cases these are neither outright frauds nor are they um, uh, conscious, non sequiturs, right? I think, I think that the, the poetry that plays in the ruins of the truth, honestly, I think a lot of that was really in fashion when I was in college. I think the language poets, and especially the sort of the post-language poets, were, um, were, were really into that. There was a, 
There was an edition of the Best American Poetry that was edited by Lynn Higinian, like right around when I was in college or right after, I can't remember. But that to me felt like playing in the ruins of truth. I think today there is, I think I think that there a lot of the poetry that I read today feels more like a version of what I was doing as a junior in college. That, that's my intuition. I, I, I thought I would um, pull up a specific example though, uh, just, just to illustrate. Now this is a, a beloved poem. Many, many people in fact have written poems citing this poem in the uh, dedication as, as after Ocean Wong's Someday I'll Love Ocean Wong. And this poem uh, has the note after the title, after Frank O'Hara slash after Roger Reeves. Um, Roger Reeves is a contemporary poet who wrote a poem called Someday I'll Love Roger Reeves and who uh, in, in, in introduction to this poem noted another poem by Frank O'Hara called Katie in which the penultimate line is Someday I'll Love Frank O'Hara. The Frank O'Hara poem is a really, it's a very silly little short, short sort of uh, jokey exercise poem that he apparently composed uh, on a beach vacation with the six-year-old daughter of a friend whose who, who, her name was Katie. So, so it's a little sort of silly joke poem. The Ocean Vuong poem makes a couple of little references to it, one with the title. Then he also, the, the poem talks about loneliness or being lonely. And then there's also as um, Andrew Epstein, who's a professor at the Florida State, has a pretty good little blog entry giving some of the the, the um, backstory to the the Frank O'Hara poem and noting he also notes that that there is another allusion in the Ocean Vuong poem to the day Lady died, which is a, a very famous Frank O'Hara poem. So I'll include a link to Andrew Epstein's um, little article. Mostly he he writes a lot about the New York School of Poets, so so that's mostly where he's coming from. I'll include a link to his article and to. Uh, Katie by Frank O'Hara and to Someday I'll Love Roger Reeves by Roger Reeves. But the poem I'm going to talk about is Someday I'll Love Ocean Vuong. Uh, so I'll, um, I'll read Someday I Love, Someday I'll Love Ocean Vuong. So it's originally published in the New Yorker. There's a couple, there's, there's another version of it. I think that sometimes he read with a, um, a small adjustment, not one that I think makes a big, big difference. But this is the version that appeared in The New Yorker, and then it appeared later in his uh, just fabulously, fabulously celebrated book, Night Sky with Exit Wounds. This is Someday I Love Ocean Vuong. After Frank O'Hara, after Roger Reeves. Ocean, don't be afraid. The end of the road is so far ahead, it is already behind us. Don't worry. Your father is only your father until one of you forgets. Like how the spine won't remember its wings, no matter how many times our knees kiss the pavement. Ocean, are you listening? The most beautiful part of your body is wherever your mother's shadow falls. Here's the house with childhood whittled down to a single red tripwire. Don't worry, just call it horizon and you'll never reach it. Here's today, jump. I promise it's not a lifeboat. Here's the man whose arms are wide enough to gather your leaving. And here the moment, just after the lights go out, when you can still see the faint torch between his legs. 
how you use it again and again to find your own hands. You asked for a second chance and are given a mouth to empty into. Don't be afraid. The gunfire is only the sound of people trying to live a little longer. Ocean, ocean, get up. The most beautiful part of your body is where it's headed. And remember, loneliness is still time spent with the world. Here's the room with everyone in it. Your dead friends passing through you like wind through a wind chime. Here's a desk with the gimp leg and a brick to make it last. Yes, here's a room so warm and blood close, I swear you will wake and mistake these walls for skin. So the, the line that, that apparently he sometimes read differently was, uh, don't be afraid, the gunfire is only the sound of people trying to live a little longer. And then in some cases he would add, and failing. Uh, though, though that's not the version that appeared in the New Yorker. So, you know, this is a poem that uh, contains little in the way of overtly received language. It is, uh, it tends to be fairly surprising line to line. You know, uh, it, we don't, it would be hard to anticipate precisely what comes one sentence after the next, like how the spine, line break, won't remember its wings. Well, didn't see that coming. No matter how many times our knees, okay, spine, wings, knees, some kind of body, kiss the pavement. Oh, didn't see that coming either. So, you know, it, it, it is pretty, uh, it follows the, the principle of not being boringly predictable. It is not prosaic either in the sense that, uh, though it has some somewhat conversational, you know, uh, constructions, uh, don't be afraid, you ask for a second chance. You know, there's some very simple, simple construction, simple uh, language, a lot of monosyllables, but it's not prosaic in that it would be hard to set down much in this poem that would be paraphrasable. It would be hard to identify uh, much in this poem that seemed to have a, a single, simple, straightforward, quotidian denotation to it. Uh, the, the, the lines seem to stand as themselves and only as themselves. I think this, it's a poem that does make pretty insistent use of the, the James Wright uh, inspirational non sequitur volta, except that it, it's not so much a volta, it's almost line by line by line. That is, there are, there are sentences that are structured like wisdom statements, but are in their ontological denotation sort of nonsensical the end of the road is so far ahead of ahead it is already behind us i mean that that could easily be a deepity um your father is only your father until one of you forgets i, I don't know what that means i mean maybe it means that he didn't have a relationship with his father and so there's nothing there to support the existence of the relationship except for one or the other person's memory of it, I guess is what that that probably means. The spine and the wings and the pain, I mean, who knows what the knees and the kissing the pavement. Uh, we used to be angels, but, or you used to be an angel, but you've been brought down to earth and, and humbled and your humility on earth won't remind you of your your earlier angelic form. The the most beautiful the line that's often quoted, or sentence that's often quoted from this poem, the most beautiful part of your body is wherever your mother's shadow falls. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I guess the, if, the, if the mother's shadow is beautiful or the mother's the mother's influence or her love is, is beautiful. And so that's what 
gives the body its value. I, I guess that's sort of a meaning. I mean, I'll say I've read two or three little uh, commentaries by people who, who claim to love this poem, but there's very little, uh, it, no point did I read them and say, oh, that's what's going on. Oh, right. Okay, I get it now. I mean, in most cases, the commentary consisted largely of uh, uh, presenting a sample line and then saying, see? Or observing that, say, in the sentence, the end of the road is so far ahead, it is already behind us. So the, the line break falls after ahead, meaning that, that the line break coincides with the, the seeming reversal in meaning. So that's true. I don't really know what it does. Uh, some of them also point out that there's a suggestion of gay sex in the poem, which which I guess does seem to be the case. There's a, seems to be some fellatio, you're asked for a second chance and are given a mouth to empty into. Uh, you can still see the faint torch between his legs. Sure, we, yes. And and the, the mere presence of this is is, uh, is by, said by some people to be, to make the poem important and valuable. Maybe it does. The reference to a lifeboat and to gunfire uh, recalls to some readers Ocean Vuong's personal history as the product of a union between an American soldier and uh, a native Vietnamese woman after the Vietnam War. I'm sorry, I should correct that. It was Vuong, it was actually Vuong's mother, whose uh, father was a, a, an American soldier. Vuong, uh, Vuong's grandfather was an American soldier. So so that is is seems to be true. Again, I don't know what that does for the poem other than be a fact. You know, I should say there, there are parts of the poem I, I kind of like, you know, your dead friends passing through you like wind through a wind chime. I don't know, I, I kind of like that. I mean, it's, it's a, that's a clear, clear enough moment. I don't really know how it connects to anything else in the poem, but it seems, I, I, I more or less understand it. And it's a pretty startling image. Those, those ghostly figures rendering the you know the 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 speaker's body, uh, passive and and flimsy, and you know in in contrast to the the active and overwhelming haunting of the the dead friends. And there's something about that last image. Yes, here's a room so warm and blood close. I swear you will wake and mistake these walls for skin. He's he's calling to mind, of course, the the mother's womb, and the the feeling of a uh, of being being home, being cozy, being comfy, being where one belongs and maybe even going back into one's own origins. And that's a charged and, and potentially rich image. But but again, I, I don't really know what happens with it. So I don't think this is a poem written cynically. I don't think this is a poem written as a, as a trick or a fraud. I think it's a poem written totally sincerely. And with some continuous or consistent feeling in the author. I just tend to, I tend to suspect that this is a poem written using a series of, you know, sort of workshop-friendly writing guidelines and an intuition and, and not, you know, not, no, not a lack of talent either, but it's written with the with the assumption that the reader will uh, will effectively inhabit the writer's mind. I don't think this was a poem written 
with, and this was something I, I mentioned about the learner poem before. You know, I, 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 as with, as with this poem, I think Lerner absolutely spent a lot of time and effort on his poem. But here again, I, I am, I'm, I doubt, I'm doubtful about how much time or effort the poet spent wondering about the effect of the poem. That is really bothering to imagine the mind of a reader and try to reverse engineer an experience for that reader. My, um, my working uh, metaphor, my working analogy for the reader-writer relationship for years now has been that of the host and the guest. I think a good writer is a good host and a good reader is a good guest. And as in life, when I am the host, I try to take all of the responsibility on myself. I try not to expect too much of my guests. I try to say, I'm going to go the distance. I'm going to reach across the void to make this as homey, as comfortable, as welcoming an experience as I can. And when I'm a guest, likewise, I try to ask as little as possible of my hosts. I try to go the distance to make the host feel at ease in his own house. The same goes when I'm reading and writing. As a writer, I'm always... Uh, terrified of leaving the reader stranded, of leaving the reader uh, bored, of disorienting the reader to no end. And as a reader, I'm always interested in uh, trying to meet the writer where he's starting from. Right? I want to imagine the mind of something. Part of what I do when I read is, especially if I read something that was written a while ago, is I try to imagine the mind of someone who loved this book, right? The someone for whom every moment of this book was a delight, was, was, a, was a rich and possibly even challenging joy. I try to imagine that and I try to uh, simulate that in my own mind. So I, I don't mean to suggest that the Ocean Vuong or Ben Lerner or any poet should be bending over backwards to accommodate a lazy and uh, self-centered reader. But I do think that a poet like Ocean Vuong, at least in a poem like this, is a pretty fucking terrible host. I think really, it's, it's, it's unfair to say he's a bad host. He's not a host. He has neglected to host this poem. So uh, to return very briefly to the Isaire essay, uh, uh, Wolfgang Isaire had this essay in 1972 called The Reading Process, A Phenomenological Approach. And I talked before about how he he kind of identifies reading as a, a series of, he doesn't use the expression stepping stones, but it's something like that. He does he does talk, uh, use the, um, the image of the constellation. He says that reading is made up of these sort of sentences and then the, dis, the gaps between the sentences. And there's a spectrum of clarity or a spectrum of coherence. And at one end of, on, at one end of that spectrum, the, the, the denotation or the, the effect of the sentences is so crammed together that instead of stepping stones on a creek, you're basically dealing with a, with a cobblestone road. And he says that's the, at that end lies boredom. At that end lies just absolute excessive explanation. It's too much, um, too, too much information and not enough room to breathe for the reader. And then at the other end of the spectrum, he calls, he says, that, you know, for the reader, at the other end of the spectrum lies excessive strain. That is the, the gaps between the sentences are so vast 
that only the most dedicated and skillful reader can possibly make the leap. So it's this is this is the um, this is the essay I I, I read from, and then I, I said that I thought that there are poems, there are incoherent poems, not all incoherent poems, but there are incoherent poems that are not just that don't just fall toward the the difficult end of that spectrum. It's not just that there's there, the gaps between their sentences or the gaps between their little syntactical units are too big. It's that there's actually something missing. Now, here's a little passage from uh, closer to the end of, or this is really from the middle of the essay, but I think it's, it's a helpful one. Again, this is uh, Wolfgang Isaire in uh, The Reading Process. The manner in which the reader experiences the text will reflect his own disposition. And in this respect, the literary text acts as a kind of mirror. But at the same time, the reality which this process helps to create is one that will be different from his own. Since, normally, we tend to be bored by texts that present us with things we already per know perfectly well ourselves. So we say, you know, when we read, there are these gaps between, the, you know, the, the, the no story is completely told, as he said. We always have something to fill in. It may be imagining what the main character looks like. It may be uh, inferring how we got from one particular step of the story to another. It may be uh, more or less depending on the proclivities of the um of the writer. I know in, I have not read the Rachel Cusk books that have been so celebrated recently, but I, I know one of the things I've heard about them is that they mostly consist of dialogue, which is to say there's very little scene description. And so if you're to read those books, then any scene you'd really have to sort of imagine for yourself. I think about this too with something like reading a play. You know, I've spent a lot of time reading plays, and so it feels very natural to me, but I know a lot of people have trouble reading a naked uh, stage script because there's so much that's just not there. And it can be hard to project all of this action on stage based on nothing but some names followed by the dialogue. Um, but you know, everything you read, depending on what it is, as Brad Lighthouser said of poems, um, at the poetry reading where I met my wife. Uh, fuck, how long ago was that? 15 years ago? Damn. All right. Well, as he said at that reading, he said, in poetry, you take the line for the mountain. And, and that's true. You have to fill in everything that's not there. And when you fill it in, what Isaiah says is that when you fill it in, you have to fill it in from what you know. You have to fill it in from your own experience. And yet, and here's the paradox that he's really interested in, and this is why I think this passage is particularly useful. Thus, we have the apparently paradoxical situation in which the reader is forced to reveal aspects of himself in order to experience a reality which is different from his own. The impact this reality makes on him will depend largely on the extent to which he himself actively provides the unwritten part of the text. And yet, in supplying all the missing links, he must think in terms of experiences different from his own. Indeed, it is only by leaving behind the familiar world of his own experience that the reader can truly participate in the adventure the literary text offers him. This is uh, a somewhat dry rendering of what I think is 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 really sort of the like the soulful magic of reading and writing, which is that we have to make up in our own minds the world the writer is creating for us. We have to make it up from our own lives, but 
It would be of no interest to us if it were all merely regurgitation of our memories. We have to take our lives, our knowledge, our minds, and using the guidance of the writer, we have to turn them into something new. We have to transform ourselves, our minds, our knowledge of the world. We have to transform it into a different world. And he doesn't say this here because he's a scholar. He's really interested in reading. He's not really coming at this problem as a writer. But the other side of that transformation is, of course, the writer's part of the bargain which is that if he is going to offer meaningful guidance to the reader, then it's not enough just to write down what calls to mind his own experience to him. He has to leave the reader the right kinds of cues, the right kinds of hints and instructions that will help the reader construct the world that the writer is imagining from the reader's mind. That is, It is impossible, it is impossible to write effectively unless you are continually, not always, not continuously, but continually, unless you are continually trying to imagine the reader's mind. And that, I would bet you a dollar, is something Ocean Vuong did not do in this poem, except perhaps in this way. He is a very celebrated poet. It is difficult to express how celebrated he is. And in case any of you have not heard of him, I'll just just, um, read you a little of his Wikipedia page just to clarify what I mean when I say that he is celebrated. Ocean Vuong is a Vietnamese... This is from Wikipedia. Ocean Vuong is a Vietnamese-American poet, essayist, and novelist. Vuong is a recipient of the 2014 Ruth Lilly Sergeant Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation. Big deal. 2016 Whiting Award, a bigger deal, and the 2017 T.S. Eliot Prize for his poetry, incredibly big deal. His debut novel, On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, was published in 2019. By the way, to wide, wide acclaim. He received a MacArthur Grant the same year. That is the so-called Genius Grant. He is also, one should note, 32 years old. His Poems have been published everywhere you could imagine, including the New Yorker and the New York Times. Uh, He is an associate professor professor in the MFA program for writers at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Big deal. He is a Kundeman Fellow. Big deal. He is the... Listen to this. In August 2020, Vuong was revealed as the seventh writer, seventh, to contribute to the Future Library Project. The project, which compiles original works by writers each year from 2014 to uh, to 2114, sorry, from 2014 to 2114, over a century. This project will remain unread until the collected hundred works are eventually published in 2114. So he was one of the first seven writers chosen to contribute to a project written uh, to be read by nobody until a hundred years have passed. So he is about as celebrated it is, as it is possible to be celebrated, particularly at the very tender young age of 32 years old. So I, I, I say all that only because I think that 
uh, and I and I have to guess, <laughs> not having much experience of my own to go on here, but I have to guess that if you have that experience, if your work is celebrated to that extent, and granted, in, uh, so in, in 2015, not all of that had happened, but a lot of that had happened when this poem came out. If you have been celebrated to that extent, then you know that when you write something, it will be received with great attention and probably with great acclaim. So I suspect that Ocean Vuong is not simply writing for his own solipsistic vision. I don't think he's simply writing to his own comprehension. I think he's writing... I think, I think that he is writing with the expectation that there will be some mind out there, some readerly mind that he has inferred from all of the praise, all of the celebration, that will make sense of this, that will pull it all together. I, that even if it doesn't all make sense to him, I think he probably does genuinely believe that there is a readerly mind in which the experience of this poem, the experience of reading this poem, is profound, is moving, is uh, clear, is memorable, is rich and valuable, and is coherent. I, I think that he probably really believes that. And, and that's about the saddest fucking thing I can imagine. So I had originally meant to uh, talk about Kava Akbar's book and a review of it that appeared in the New Yorker, but the the episode ran long, and I also realized there were there were some other things I wanted to talk about that had to do with the book and the review. So I'm going to save that for another week and just close out this week with uh, an, another you know, just really an old old favorite of mine. I mean, just a poem I really love. Uh, it, it is, it is a poem, uh, all about making fun of old people. It is, it is a pretty merciless poem, at least at first. Uh, and I, I, I decided to read it today, not because it's an especially good example of the use of incoherence for the sake of achieving some other, some, you know, greater effect or getting at some unironic truth, as Cameron might put it, but because it's a poem that's really about imagining someone else's mind. So rather than uh, just start with outright compassion and uh, wringing out earnest feeling for his fellow man, Philip Larkin did, uh, did the Baudelarian thing and uh, spend, he spends the first stanza of the poem pointing and laughing at the suffering of others. And it's only in the subsequent stanzas that that initial mockery, that, that initial cruelty begins to turn and become more complex. So he, he, he points at old people and he talks about how uh, embarrassing and awful they are. And then he imagines some of why that might be and then in the third stanza, he he actually tries to reproduce something like what might be happening in the minds of these people he was mocking in the first stanza. And, and the fourth stanza resolves in 
one of the more memorable and poignant uh, closing lines of, uh, of any poem I can think of from, uh, you know, the second half of the 20th century, I'll say. This is, this is one of my very, very favorite poems. It is, as I said, very mean at first, but as with Baudelaire's cruelest prose poems, it is mean in the service of what I think of as an ultimate compassion. So with that in mind, I'm going to read, I'm not going to have a whole lot to say about this poem this week, uh, but but with, with all that in mind, this is The Old Fools by Philip Larkin. I think this was in the Wits and Weddings, I want to say. I'm not sure. Well, at any rate, it was in the, I think it was in the Wits and Weddings. He has it dated as uh, uh, 12th of January, 1973. Though if he actually wrote it in a day, then uh, I'll be damned. This is The Old Fools by Philip Larkin. What do they think has happened, the old fools, to make them like this? Do they somehow suppose it's more grown up when your mouth hangs open and drools and you keep on pissing yourself and can't remember who called this morning? Or that if they only chose, they could alter things back to when they danced all night or went to their wedding or sloped arms some September or do they fancy there's really been no change and they've always behaved as if they were crippled or tight or sat through days of thin, continuous dreaming, watching light move? If they don't, and they can't, it's strange. Why aren't they screaming? At death, you break up. The bits that were you start speeding away from each other forever with no one to see. It's only oblivion, true. We had it before, but then it was going to end and was all the time merging with a unique endeavor to bring to bloom the million petaled flower of being here. Next time you can't pretend there'll be anything else. And these are the first signs, not knowing how, not hearing who, the power of choosing gone. Their looks show that they're for it, ash hair, toad hands, prune face dried into lines. How can they ignore it? Perhaps being old is having lighted rooms inside your head and people in them acting. People you know, yet can't quite name. Each looms like a deep loss restored, from known doors turning, setting down a lamp, smiling from a stair, extracting a known book from the shelves, or sometimes only the rooms themselves. Chairs and a fire burning, the blown bush at the window, or the sun's faint friendliness on the wall some lonely rain-ceased midsummer evening. That is where they live. Not here and now, but where all happened once. This is why they give an air of baffled absence, trying to be there, yet being here. For the rooms grow farther, leaving incompetent cold, the constant wear and tear of taken breath and them crouching 
below Extinction's Alp. The old fools, never perceiving how near it is. This must be what keeps them quiet. The peak that stays in view wherever we go, for them, is rising ground. Can they never tell what is dragging them back and how it will end? Not at night? Not when the strangers come? Never throughout the whole hideous inverted childhood? Well, we shall find out. It, it is just a terrific poem in that last line. Well, we shall find out. Uh, the well, by the way, is, is before the line break. It's, 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 a, it's a weighty comma there. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's, obviously, it's just it's a it's a, a perfect uh, closing line with the the you know the soft uh, double entendre on you know discovery and and then of course our own uh, experience of what he has been speculating about. There's also I think a really nice touch with the um, you know this is this is a poem in which we're seeing for the most part these people who are who are reduced to a state that seems barely human. We're seeing them from the outside. We're, we're gawking at them. We're sneering at them. And, you know, we, we get at some point into a version of their minds and we, we imagine them looking back on their own lives. But there's there's another, I think it's, it's a really nice touch in that very, very last stanza. Uh, we, we actually get a brief glimpse of ourselves in their eyes, right? When the strangers come. We are, of course, the strangers. We are the people they don't recognize anymore. And, you know, if it were not, you know, Robert Morin has that wonderful essay, Pure and Impure Poetry, and if it were not as vicious as it is, if it were not as, as cruel and closely observed as it is, I think it would be hard for it to achieve the same emotional effect. There are, uh, at this point, good Lord, I mean, far more than in the 70s when this was written, but, but at this point, there are there are hundreds and thousands of uh, grandmother with dementia poems. Uh, this one, I think, stands up still because it is so unsentimental, which is a remarkable thing to say about a poem that includes the phrase, the million-petaled flower of being here. But I think Larkin pulls it off pretty well. There's, It's funny, there's one odd little note in this poem that always catches me. And that is, in that last stanza, he says, the constant wear and tear of taken breath. And, you know, to my mind, wear and tear, and even maybe constant wear and tear, that's a that's a pretty received phrase. That's, that's one of those ready, ready-mades. You know, that's a little patch of boilerplate, or I think, as I said in another episode, a little bit of dead skin on the surface of the poem. And I think Ryan or somebody made an argument that it's that the part of the purpose of it is that it's supposed to seem kind of dead and, and tired. But isn't that true of, of any use of the phrase wear and tear? So it does seem to me like, you know, if we talk about that, that um, I, I, it's, I talked earlier about the kind of the workshop virtue of avoiding familiar strings of words. 
And I, I, I think it is clearly not sufficient on its own or not sufficient in combination with a few other novelty seeking devices for uh, composing poems. But I think it is a meaningful rule of thumb. It, it is better for the most part to avoid those pat phrases unless you're going to do something with them. And here I think, I think it's a little, I think it's a very, very small and very slight uh, flaw. In a, in a pretty uh, extraordinary poem. Um, so again, that was The Old Fools by Philip Larkin, one of my very, fa very favorite poems and one of my very, very favorite poets, though had I known him, I get the impression he would not have been one of my favorite people. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can always reach me at sleerickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.